I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Every nation needs a mythical hero, a key figure in its history that against all odds rebelled and fought the malicious powers that be in order to promise a future. To us, Zionist Israelis, the Aronson family and the Nili underground is as close to a mythical legend as it gets. So much has been said and written about the British and their ruthless 31 years of occupation here in Israel-Palestine between the years 1917 and 1948. But many seem to forget that before the British, the Ottoman Empire ruled this land for centuries. And when the first Zionists came here, in the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, they had to face a ruthless, cruel and primitive regime that was soon to bring a holocaust on the Armenian people. It was under these circumstances that the Aronson family, who were Romanian Zionists that dwelled in the just-established village of Zichon Yaakov, decided to rebel and assist the British from within. Their underground became a remarkable story which would inspire generations. Gregory J. Wallens is an American lawyer and an author. His book, Papa's Game, was nominated to the Edgar Allan Poe Award, and he wrote several other critically acclaimed books, alongside op-eds for leading American newspapers such as the New York Times and the LA Times. His most recent book is called The Woman Who Fought an Empire, Sarah Aharonson and her Neely Spy Ring and it depicts the incredible story of the Aharonson underground. We're thrilled to have him on our show to talk about these turbulent and adventurous times. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. And as you can hear, I'm by myself today, since Aitan is abroad on a vacation. But I'm here with Gregory. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me on your show. Did I get any, th- any of these details wrong? No, you did great. Okay. So, who were the Aronsons? The Aronson family came from Romania. Malka and Ephraim, and at that point, their two young children, they eventually had five children, set sail in 1882 from Romania with several hundred other Romanian Jews fleeing pogroms and increasing restrictions on Jewish economic economic activity. And they sailed to Palestine. They eventually landed at Jaffa and an advanced contingent went to Mount Carmel and walking for several hours reached the hill, a hilltop site and there they established the settlement that now is called, well, the town that is now called Zikron Yaakov. And they were very much in Israel or Palestine, as it was called at the time, uh, in the spirit of Zionism. The Jews who lived there were, many were Orthodox Jews who had come to live and die in the Holy Land and study texts there while they were alive. And they did not come in the spirit of Zionism. The Aronson and the other Romanians were there very much in the spirit of a Jewish revival. And the heroine of my book, Sarah Aronson, was born in 1890. Uh, She was the fourth of the five Aronson children, three older brothers and a younger sister named Rivka. And she grew up not 
resembling anything like a child in the Romanian shtetls. She thought of herself as a pioneering Jew, uh, and the spirit in which she approached life was that of participating in a Jewish revival. But at the time, and this is important to understanding uh, Sarah, is the Zionist spirit was bold, for sure, but not so bold as to recognize equality between men and women. In the settlement of Petatikva, the young women demanded the right to vote at settlement meetings, and even their own mothers opposed them. Women, Zionist women, were expected to stay home, do the household chores, make the meals, and bear and raise children. In that sense, they brought the shtetl. In that sense, well, it wasn't just the shtetl, it was practically the whole world at that time. Right. It's hard to remember the inferior status yeah, that that's women before held. before the Bolshevik Revolution. B- b- and before, well before women got the right to vote in places like the United States. And, and it wasn't as though Sarah was a feminist. She wasn't. It was just that she seemed to care not or have no use for Jewish gender expectations. She would uh, ride her horse into the countryside alone, taking only a pistol for protection. She hunted with the men. She was, she was supposedly the first woman in Palestine to refuse to wear a corset, and she argued politics with her, her brothers. And she matured into a, a beautiful, intelligent w- woman with a wide range of knowledge, despite her, the fact that her formal schooling ended at age 12, and an independent attitude. The photographs show her with a sort of upward tilt of her head, and this independent-minded attitude. And uh, young men tended to fall in love with her. In fact, all, almost all of the men in your book fall in love with her. And also, I guess, the readers kind of do, too. Well, I hope so. Did you? Yeah, I, I tell you, <laughs> I, I did. But what I really, in a certain sense... His was, wife is sitting here, by the way. <laughs> uh, she won't be jealous. Um, in, in a certain sense, it was Sarah, just this remarkable woman and not a myth. She was real. She was flesh and blood. What she did was real, and what she suffered was real. I think it was more the notion of these these young Jews, the ones who eventually became part of the, the spy ring. Uh, she didn't actually found the spy ring. It was started by her brother Aaron, who was a world-famous uh, scientist uh, with, with connections throughout the Ottoman Empire and in the U.S., a highly influential man, uh, and a dashing young man named Absalom Feinberg, who today in Israel is thought of as the first Sabra. And, and they started the spy ring, and eventually she came to lead it as a result of a, of a particular disaster that happened. But the, the point about these young people who started it, they were, they, their, their notion was that after World War I started, that Jews' future in Palestine would be best served by a British victory. And in this sense, this analysis of theirs was shared by very, very few people in Palestine, in the Jewish community, in the Yeshuv. And for example, a young lawyer at the outbreak of World War I named David Ben-Gurion had a different analysis. He believed that the future of the Yeshuv 
was with it lay in an Ottoman victory. He offered the Ottoman Pashas, the, the rulers of the Ottoman Empire, to raise a Jewish army to fight against Great Britain. And they were suspicious of Zionists, they were suspicious of, of David Ben-Gurion. So to show their appreciation, they threw him out of the country. <laughs> yeah. he, he then went on to the United States, and for the next three years, almost the, during the duration of all of World War I, he continued to campaign for a, for a Jewish army to fight on, alongside the, uh, the Ottoman Empire. And, and so the, the Aronsons, Aaron, Sarah, and, the, and particularly this young man, Avshalom Feinberg, uh, had a vision that was shared by no one. And they then acted on that vision. And in doing so, they were in effect committing treason against uh, the Ottoman Empire. If they were caught, they would almost undoubtedly be hung. And they had no espionage experience whatsoever. And so the audacity of this is breathtaking. So let's try and understand the circumstances. So we're talking about a land. You mentioned in your book 450,000 Arabs and a few dozens of thousands of Jews uh, at the time at the end of the... Although the numbers are disputable, but... Um, and it's ruled by the Ottoman Empire. It's uh, dying, basically, this empire, right? It's not at its highest and best time. And and what, what, what defines this... Uh, rule here in Israel? What does it look like? What drives them to resent it so profoundly? Up until the outbreak of World War I, the 85,000 or so Jews who lived in Palestine, about 10% of the population, by and large, were not doing badly. Uh, they were going about their lives, practicing their religion, being farmers in these two dozen or so settlements, of which Zikron Yaakov was one that existed at the outbreak of the war, one of which was the newly started settlement of Tel Aviv, next to the seaport of Jaffa. And that changed, everything changes in a war like World War I, and it was no less true in the Ottoman Empire. And among other things, the Ottoman army sees the Jews' farm equipment their farm animals, their barbed wire for military purposes. It meant that there was the, the Jewish community couldn't produce enough food to sustain itself, which is one of the reasons why Aaron Aronson and Avshalom Feinberg concluded that a, Jew, a, a British victory was the would be the salvation for the Jews. Please exp explain that part. Well, it was because of the repression of the Jews and there was increasing repression. Uh, there was an incident where in the town of Hedera, uh, an, an Arab who was very anti-Jewish told the British that the Hedera Jews had been secretly delivering wheat to the British, which wasn't true. It was absurd. They didn't have enough wheat or food for themselves. And so the Ottomans surrounded the town and arrested 13 young men and marched them off to be hung, ultimately partly because of an intervention from, from Aaron Aronson using his connections, uh, they weren't hung, they were released. But this was a shattering moment for Avshalom, who was one of the ones arrested, and Aaron, and they, they began to appreciate that the Jews had a precarious, uh, were in precarious circumstances in Palestine. Now, Sarah came at it differently. 
because of a particular train trip she took. So we'll get to the train trip. I just want to emphasize that we're talking about a regime um, here in Palestine, Israel, that is extremely corrupt, right? Absolutely. It all it ran on backsheesh, <laughs> on bribery. That was the the currency, if you will, that by which things got done. It was corrupt and it was brutal and it was backward. Although before the war, the Pashas, who had really supplanted the, um, you know, the, the religious regime that had, had existed, uh, were trying to modernize. But it was a, a dying empire. But as someone said, it took a long time to die. And had, had it not been for World War I, it might have existed for much longer than it did. Okay, and then uh, Sarah Aronson, before the spiring is um, established, she travels to um, not Insta- Istanbul, but it was then it was Insta- it was Istanbul, Istanbul now Constant- then known as Constantinople. Right, and she travels there because she was married, and then she gets tired of it, and then she basically I'm doing it <laughs> I'm doing a little shortcut here, and then she comes she she travels basically back to Palestine and what does she see as she travels back she takes the train across the Anatolian plateau and it turns into a journey into the heart of darkness which was the genocide by the Ottomans against the Armenians and she sees the slaughter she sees the families being herded like cattle by the Ottoman soldiers the stragglers being beaten or shot she sees dogs feeding on the decomposing bodies on both sides of the tracks Uh, she watches a train pull into a station and deliberately run over dozens of Armenian refugees who were sick and lying around the tracks. The engineer jumps out and he says, see how I've murdered these, these swine? She faints, Sarah faints, and when she comes to, uh, Ottoman officials, officials nearby berate her for lack of patriotism. The brutality of this can never be underestimated. And, and or overestimated actually and uh, we know all and, that because she we have her journal or her letters well the, the train trip left her with a vision and this shaped the rest of her days the vision was that unless Great Britain won its war against the Ottoman Empire sooner or later the same thing would happen to the Jews in Palestine and she comes back and we know this because that this is her experience and, and ultimately her vision. We know it from in several ways, but among other things, when she returned, she tells her brother, who met her at the train station in Haifa in a horse and carriage to bring her back to Zikron, she tells him what she had seen. And he writes in his journal that she was never referring to Sarah, who's a hardy child who grew up in an unforgiving land. And he notes, records in his journal, which he, he kept meticulously, she was never hysterical before. But whenever any mention of the Armenians comes up, she becomes hysterical. She was, in effect, suffering from a form of post-traumatic stress. Right. From the things that she saw. From the things that she saw. For three weeks, basically, her journey. Three weeks. It was a longer journey than it should have been because she was constantly getting bumped to make way for Ottoman soldiers. So she would be in these remote train stations and talk to Armenians and and hear more of the uh, of the horrors that were taking place. But you know, Gregory, thinking about it, isn't history ironic in the sense that they couldn't know that their dream of a British regime, right? It will be the Brits who, by 
not allowing Jews from Europe to come to Palestine, were in fact remotely responsible for the number of six millions, million Jews who were slaughtered during the Holocaust because they, they wouldn't let them run away to the only place they could run away to, uh, run away to which is occupied uh, Palestine under the British mandate. Isn't it? There is a little bit, I think, maybe irony there. I, I don't, I can't imagine that anyone could have foreseen that in World War I. And I will say that uh, what the British did during World War II is unforgivable, but my own country, the United States, yes, and I wrote a book about this, that was my last book about the American response to the Holocaust, was not much better because they took steps to bar Jews who could get out of Europe at the beginning of the war uh, from entering the United States. They put up what are called uh, paper walls, meaning bureaucratic barriers to Jewish entry, and so did many other countries. But the mandate of the British people, of the British here in Palestine was, in fact, to be a, eventually a haven. So uh, when I read about her thinking that the British will save us from a Holocaust, I, I, I was, you know, stricken by this. Uh, but that's just, you know, a side note. Uh, I, I think it's an interesting observation. Mayor, but um, ultimately, though, I think you, you sort of take these things one at a time. And, right. and from her point of view, let's, let's get through this of course, war, not, uh, yeah, not worry about how to deal known. with it, and she couldn't I'm have just known. saying history yeah. is ironic history, in, in yeah. retrospect. Yeah. And, so, uh, and so she gets back and she finds out that when she was gone, basically, <laughs> her brother uh, and, and, and Avshalom... I found it a little aspiring. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know. That's, that's exactly right. A hobby on their free time. But one of the things you have to appreciate about these would-be British spies in Palestine is, as committed as they were, they had a really challenging problem because they were behind enemy lines. Yeah. And there they needed... There were no cell phones. That there were no cell phones. There was no, at this point, whatever communications had previously been available, postal or telegraph, had been cut by the war. And so they had to make contact with the British. British intelligence, the nearest British intelligence, was in Cairo, in English-occupied Egypt. And they had only two ways to get there. It was either a neutral uh, country ship, uh, a voyage across the Mediterranean. There were very few of those because of the blockades that had been imposed on the Ottoman Empire, or a very hazardous crossing of the Sinai Desert. And Avshalom and Aaron and, and um, Sarah's other brother, Alexander, who had started the spy ring, between them, made six collective attempts to reach the British, one of which ended in grief. And it, it was something that you, you keep thinking, why would they keep trying? Why were they so committed? And I think they, they had really internalized this notion that the plight of, of the Jews could, you know, could will get worse unless Great Britain uh, wins. And I think Sarah's return and her stories of what she had seen galvanized them even even more. Uh, and then, so this Armenian, the, Sarah's witnessing the Armenian genocide was what, what I, I like to think of as the first of the two great shocks in her life. It was forming that vision that uh, this would happen to the Jews and the second shock occurred 
when Avshalom Feinberg, a dashing, impetuous young man, a poet, uh, a warrior, if you will, uh, fearless to the point of suicidal, uh, decided he was going to reach the British. And he set out with another spy named Yosef Lashansky to right. cross the Sinai Desert over Sarah's deep misgivings. Right. After they had sent Aaron, a Aaron had and gone, he failed to, to, and the, to and, communicate back. And they didn't hear from him. Right. And Absalom, who, who can't stand to sit still for a minute, uh, death is preferable to an action right. in his mind. He kept saying, he's left us here to fight it out alone. And he goes off leaving Sarah, a young, inexperienced woman in, in this kind of an area, in, in charge of a spy ring. Because right. by now they had two dozen spies roaming around Palestine as far away as, as Damascus, gathering all this information about the Turkish military dispositions and so on, and writing these reports, putting them in a leather bag, that they have no means at that point to deliver to the British. Right. And shortly, well, Absalom set out not knowing and this is, this is the tragedy, not knowing that, in fact, Aaron had reached the British. He was actually in Cairo, which is where Absalom was trying to get, working with the British to arrange to have a spy ship, a British spy ship, sent to the Palestinian coast to pick up the intelligence. Right. And the tragedy was heartbreakingly close to British lines in the Sinai Desert, Afshalom and his companion are ambushed by Bedouin allies of the Turks. Afshalom is mortally wounded. Yosef Lashinsky is wounded but manages to get away. And he's found by an Australian patrol and taken to Aaron, who is absolutely devastated by, these, by this development. Reading this, and in general, reading your book is a little bit, although the book is amazingly written and, of course, the story is amazing, it's really frustrating sometimes to read about these guys because for example this story you just told us um the stupidity you know you, you never say it in the book it's maybe it's not pc to say but Absalom feinberg is plainly being extremely stupid by doing what he did like in this su suicide mission that he took upon himself instead of waiting inexperienced and 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 you cannot understand maybe i'm being over judgmental <laughs> but as a reader you read it what the hell are you doing man what were you thinking what what yeah but here's the irony you may be right but aaron in his grief changed the the way the british dealt with him why do i say that i think up until that moment the british were suspicious that aaron might be an ottoman agent and he, he, he was so grief-stricken because Absalom was a kind of a protege of his. They were very close. He broke down, for example, in front of a senior British intelligence officer, weeping. That officer was so moved that he promised Aaron no more suspicions, no more distrust. And the next day, Aaron was on a spy ship that reached the Palestinian coast and for the first time landed a Jewish agent who hooked up with the, the spies in Palestine. Now, maybe it was luck, but maybe convinced by Aaron's agony that he was not a double agent, they tried harder. 
And so it's possible that by dying in the desert, Avshalom made it possible, in turn, for the British and the Nili spies to start working together. And there's an argument, and we can get to it, which could have changed the course of history. So we talk about ironies. Yeah, and alternative that, histories, like what would have happened if we can't know. And, but okay, so, so Aaron succeeds in his mission, and the connection is, is made. Now Sarah Aronson is the head of the Palestine. Of the, of the, what becomes known as the Nili Spiring. Nili, Nili is, stands for? Uh, the etern- it's the Hebrew, and the initials in Hebrew for the phrase, the eternity of Israel will not lie, N-I-L-I. And that became their, their password. And ultimately the name, the password they used to identify themselves. And ultimately it became the name of the spy ring. How did they pick that name? Uh, someone more or less opened the Bible, at least the story goes this way, and stabbed their finger down and it hit that phrase. It's a nice story. I can't tell which, you. If that's which book? Which book? The Is, Bible, the Old no, Testament. No, but which... which um, Samuel? I'm Samuel, just not, yeah. I think okay. that's it. Great. Um, but here's the thing. This is, this is the second great shock that Sarah experiences. Because when the spy ship comes for the first time to Palestine, she's not aware of Absalom's death. In fact, she's written a letter to her brother because the spy ship could now take messages back and forth between brother and sister. And she's written a letter, and, and she says, I'm concerned about Absalom, in effect. Why, why doesn't he write uh, the child? He knows what situation he left me in. Meaning, he had left her in charge of a spy organization that she had no experience or training for. Uh, she was struggling. I think she felt overwhelmed. Then, it didn't happen right away, but then she's told, because Yosef Lashinsky returns to Palestine after he... He traveled with Absalom. He'd he'd been the one who had gotten away when they were ambushed. He's recovered from his wounds. He comes back to Palestine. When he and Sarah are alone, he tells Sarah what had happened. And another person who was with them uh, recalled that Sarah cried all the time. Right. She was very close to Absalom. And then she writes another letter. First letter, a young woman is in over her head. Second letter is different because the young woman has changed. And in it, after she, the death. After her. the death. After she learns of the death. And the sweet, good-natured Sarah uh, hasn't changed in that respect. But there's something that is hard-fibered in her that now emerges. And she writes that, I can't even speak of our disaster. It is too great. But that there is, And that there is nothing for her to do but to pick up and continue the work that our dear one, meaning Absalom, began. Right. And so now she has twin motivations to revenge protect her. His well, it may have been revenge, but I really think it was first protect her co-religionists from the fate that she believed was likely if the Ottomans won, and second, redeem Absalom's sacrifice. Right. And for the next ten months. She leads, and this is one of the more remarkable things I thought about her story, she leads a group of mostly young Jewish men, and these were unruly, undisciplined, impetuous. Many of them had been recruited by Absalom when he was still alive. Just amateurs. Amateurs, absolutely. As she was herself. As she was herself, but 
she had a feel, an intuition for espionage that none of them, not Absalom, not her brother Aaron, who's now in Cairo, not any of her young spies had. She was disciplined, she was committed, she was effective, and above all, she was incredibly intelligent. And that intelligence is what she applied to the work that she was doing. Right. And once a month, on moonless nights, the British spy ship came. Uh, it put in a put off put into the water a small rowboat which rowed to shore. The Nilly spies came down to the beach. This was that at, at, at athlete, and there were some words, you know, exchanged between them. How is Aaron? How are you doing? And the the uh, the spies would hand over this intelligence pouch. The British would give them provisions, and later in the summer, gold co- of 1917 gold coins for the relief of the beleaguered Yeshiv, uh, and then the boat disappeared into the blackness. And sometimes they couldn't embark, right? They couldn't uh, come to the shore, and for months the intelligence was basically... There were, it was on average once a month, but there were periods where the sea was too rough and they couldn't even land a boat. Right. And the Nilly spies went without hearing from the British. They're really... It could be on the other side of the moon, as far as the rest of the world is concerned. And it was also terribly demoralizing for them. Right, because they worked, they, they gathered intelligence dangerous in work, vain. And, right, and then no one shows up at right. the appointed time, and they're just sitting on the beach all night, you know, getting bitten by flies and staring into the darkness. Uh, it was hard work. It was dangerous work. But this young woman kept her head about her. She demonstrated really remarkable executive skills. And in one important respect, when we talk about the courses that history could have taken, she provided a piece of intelligence that may have altered. A piece. A piece. And the piece was this. She had recruited an agent who was actually in the Ottoman army, a doctor, a Jewish doctor. That's, I think, the most impressive uh, agent in the book. Yes, Dr. Newman. And he was stationed at a railway junction through which the Turkish trains carrying munitions passed on their way to the Sinai front, where the British were now advancing on Palestine and there was fierce fighting in the desert. And he reports to her about new airplanes that were being delivered by the Germans to the Turkish forces at the front. Her report, in turn, goes to the British in Cairo, and then it goes to London. And British intelligence in London realizes, based on the description of these airplanes, that they are about to lose air superiority in the Sinai desert. And it doesn't happen right away. There's some delays. But the new planes, new advanced British planes, their best are rushed to the Sinai Desert just in time for the Third Battle of Gaza. And by virtue of having restored air superiority by the time of the Third Battle, and by the way, why was there a Third Battle? Because the British had lost the first two. Right, and I don't know how many more tries they could have gotten if they if right. they lost the third. It's after the the king promised Jerusalem, or or the the prime minister. Who was it that pro- that was promised? It, it was it was the prime minister Lloyd George, and who said? Well, you have to appreciate <laughs> the the appalling losses that the right. British had taken. It was staggering in the war. In, in the war itself, yeah. in the, on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, twenty thousand. British soldiers were killed, including a thousand officers. And Britain stood up better than any other of the combatants, but nonetheless, despite their 
their toughness and their tenaciousness. Uh, British morale, it wasn't quite broken, but it was bleak. And the Prime Minister Lloyd George decided that he was going to give the British people a Christmas present, that is Christmas of 1917, by taking Jerusalem to boost their morale and hopefully show that something in this god-awful slaughter was worth, w- it. Was worth it. And so uh, the, the commander in... Um, no wonder they were reluctant to give it up. Yes, I guess so. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, General Allenby, who was then in charge of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, was told to take Jerusalem. And so the fighting, the slow march of the British across the Sinai Desert, uh, where they, they reached ultimately the Turkish lines that were set up, defensive fortifications that were set up between Gaza and Beersheba, just 25 miles. And it, the first two battles of Gaza that the British lost were an attempt to break through those lines. It wasn't Allenby, it was a different uh, general. Well, earlier yeah. it had been General Mur- Murray, but when he lost the first two battles, that's right, he lost the first two battles uh, in April of 1917. Then Allenby is brought in. They realized they need to step up uh, their game. That, exactly. <laughs> the that, that's exactly right. <laughs> and it was the it was the having air superi- superiority that right. made such a huge difference. And, and that came from Sarah's intelligence. The doctor who was at the, the train station? Originally, yeah, gave it to Sarah. Sarah gives it to the British. And they break through. They win the third battle. They break through. And the British army starts moving up the roads, down the roads to Jerusalem. Right. Sarah never knew that. Because by then, she was dead. After being tortured by the Turks... Like she knew at a certain point, she gets the word that the like she realizes this is the last days, right? I think she had a sense in the late summer of nineteen seventeen, uh, going into September, that the Ottomans were 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 grab, grasping the idea that there was a spiring operating somewhere in Palestine. Yeah, and and uh, you know I mentioned Avshalom Feinberg's death. Uh, and how that might have enabled the link-up between the Nulli spies and um, uh, the British. But in a certain respect, it was also Sarah's undoing. Why do I say that? Uh, Sarah had a problem. She was constantly being asked, after she took over the leadership throughout 1917, where's Absalom? Right. And she did not want to tell her spies that he was dead because it would demoralize them. Right. Perhaps to the point of rendering Nilly ineffective. So she made up a story. And this was this, again, the tough <laughs> Sarah, the tough-minded Sarah, yeah. which is what you have to be if you're going to do this kind of work. She just lied outright to them. To the family, to, to the his family, family her to friends, his friends, yeah, everyone. Her spies. Avshalom is in England. He's training to be a pilot. And he hopes to return He's to Egypt. running for prime minister right. of England. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, it didn't entirely satisfy them. Right. Why doesn't he write? If his hands had been amputated, he would be writing his family with his feet. And of course, they didn't like the fact that Neil is, is conspiring against the Turkish. They were afraid some, uh, from the Turkish. Some of her family members had great reservations. Th- but where the real opposition was, was in the leadership of the Yashuv, yeah. who were frightened, terrified, that Sarah was going to get them killed because the Turks would find out what she was doing, and retaliate against the entire Jewish right. community. They right. told her to stop this. 
you are a daughter of this village, the Zikron elders told her. And we demand that you stop these activities. Go somewhere else. It's amazing because it's all Jew... That's the notions. These notions are such old shtetl Jewish notions versus the new Jew, and those two worldviews just collided. But isn't this Neora a kind of an eternal dynamic? You have the even today Jew, Jewish to a sense. It, you'll see it. You'll see it perhaps eternally. But Jewish Jewish folk wisdom is in bad times like this. Keep your heads down. Stay out of trouble. And it will pass, and that's how we've kept our traditions, our religion, our communities intact for millennia. Right. And Sarah, rebels like Sarah only bring disaster. Right. And that was the dynamic that was playing out. But Sarah just wouldn't listen to them. She just refused. She also had a chance to evacuate like two or three days before the Turkish um, came and, exec- and took everyone and, and, and tortured. She had a chance to take families, take the, the spies, and... and flee to the British ship and evacuate, but she chose not to, which is also a weird choice. Like, I get it that she figured that if she ran away, the Turks will retali- would retaliate against. Well, that was a concern with evacuating all of the Nili spies and their families. They felt that it would, it, would, it would obviously demonstrate that there had been a spy ring, and if all these people suddenly disappeared, and the Turks would retaliate viciously against Sikran and the other communities where they had been right. living. As for herself, Sarah's attitude was, I want to be the last to leave. Right. She felt she was the captain of a ship, and she had to stay at the bridge until at least the last moment. In the end, she couldn't leave, she didn't leave, and the Turks, and this is the best known, perhaps, part of her story, and she's justly celebrated because part of the purpose of my book is to celebrate her courage. Um, but she was captured in early October of 1917 in her hometown. She was viciously tortured for four days, uh, never broke. But when she felt she could endure no longer, rather than break and give up the names of her spies, who she was trying to protect, she decided to kill herself. She even left a note explaining that she had no more strength to, I have no more strength to endure. I'd rather kill myself than let them torture me more or take me to Damascus and hang me there. And she left uh, even a, a short note about how she wanted to be remembered. We have fought as warriors and have not yielded. And then she was allowed to go home to change her bloody clothes for clean ones. Uh, she was alone. She found she had an, she'd hidden a gun in a secret compartment. And all the school children in Israel who visit uh, Zikran Yaakov in the Aronson homes are shown the compartment. She took the gun out and in the bathroom in, in Aaron's house, she shot herself. And she, w- she lived another four days right. in agony and then, and then she died. That made me like smile with, uh, you know, a sad smile. The, how the rookiness of her, her being a spy lasted to the very last moment in where she couldn't even kill herself you know the very basic thing every spy should, should know do, should, should know, know how, how to, to do to kill themselves <laughs> right i guess she didn't have any practice at yeah that point. you 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 tell you, you write in the book that she was instructed by a friend how to do it but he gave her some ill advice in, on that you, you right? know you know what the problem was it was the pistol if you the saw pistol it was too it was small too small right uh but you know it was horrible um and it's something one just feels chills at what she endured. Yeah. 
That's horrific At the same time, it created uh, a legend. Yeah. And, and there have been comparisons of Sarah to Joan of Arc. I'm not certain they really hold up. There were some pretty profound differences. But nonetheless, I think as much as any woman in Jewish history, she could rightfully be said to be the Jewish Joan of Arc. Right. And you know, uh, what two things surprised me before we go. I'll, I'll try to tell you what they were. First thing, uh, that the rest of the prisoners that were taken with Sarah that day and were also tortured, like most of them got out eventually from prison. They weren't hanged. They got relatively... So you may think maybe if she endured, they would let her go too because they never believed that a woman could actually be the, the spy leader. So N not at Not at first. Right. I think they began to understand after a while, particularly given her defiance. And the way she even ordered some of the Turkish soldiers to give her a glass of water, but she didn't want them to hold the water. She was badass. She, she wanted another, <laughs> another, uh, another prisoner right. uh, to do it. Uh, she may have also been more viciously tortured than the others. Yeah. But you're, you're right. Uh, if she had not shot herself, uh, because as a result of some pressures that were developing, the Turks didn't hang they did they did hang two of two, the spies yeah but most of the spies were, were released were released when the british uh yeah uh, drove the turks out of palestine and out of uh, damascus um at at the same time i i have a sense that sarah uh remember independent minded very self possessed that she wanted to maintain control she was going to decide what happened to her what happened to her body Right. And she made the decision uh, on on how to deal with this, and she kept control. And I think there's something that one can admire as well yeah. about that decision. Like in a good Star Wars trilogy, where you know the villain of Episode Two gets a little cameo in Episode One, I wasn't aware to the presence of the Germans in Turkish occupied Palestine, right? And the uh, key role that they had and the you know, you had German presence uh, all around. and they, they were even commanding Turkish armies. Right. Yeah. So that also was surprising to me, how deeply involved they were already then. Turkey and, and well, the Ottoman Empire and Germany were allies. The Germans, partly because of the, call it the incompetence of the, of the Ottoman leadership, sent generals sort of the equivalent of our you know in the united states sends trainers and advisors into places like afghanistan or iraq it was pretty much the equivalent uh, specialists in artillery they delivered all kinds of modern equipment the turkey or the ottoman empire didn't have uh and yeah and yet you know that that relationship between germany and turkey is a long-standing one it persisted today uh I don't think at the same time that anyone could have foreseen of course where where the whole thing would go right and, and that's one of the it's points just that they don't they they their obsession with us had its roots even back then. So, no there's no question some people uh, do that so some people who blame the some historians maintain that the germans could have done more to stop the armenian slaughter right uh and that that may be accurate uh, but when you look at the future, I mean, think of, we were talking about this dynamic between the establishment 
Jews and the, keep your head down and the rebels like Sarah. And I, I like to think of Sarah and Aaron and Absalom and their spies, not so much as the founders of Israel, that took another 30 years, but as the founding spirit, their resourcefulness, their vision, their boldness, their courage, those were the qualities that were necessary for the state of Israel to exist and survive. And they were the first to really e express it. Right. And, and in the end, I think the model that's been followed, at least in Israel, is Sarah's model. Be bold, do not wait to become a victim. And sometimes it doesn't work out as well as people would like. No, I get that. But I think that's what this country reflects, is that determination, we are going to keep control of our destiny. And that's exactly what Sarah and her spies were trying to do. They were trying to seize history. Mm -hmm. They were trying to shape history. That's what makes it such an audacious right. undertaking. And reinvent Jewishness in, in that and, sense. And yes, exactly, which is what your country has done, I think, since its, since its founding in, in 1948. But these, these kids... You know, and that's really, Aaron was a little bit older, but the rest of them were kids in their 20s. These kids did it first in the right. sense of creating the model. So in case you haven't realized, guys, the book is really well written, fascinating, and just you have to read it. So how do people uh, read it, Gregory? How do people get it? Amazon. You can download it on Kindle. Right. Um, You can um, get it in bookstores, Pomerantz bookstores. Uh, Pomerantz bookstore in Jerusalem has it. I believe other Israeli bookstores have it. And ask any Israeli bookstore. bookstore most of our Israel. audience is the, in America. If most are in, in the United States, the same with bookstores okay. in, uh, in the United States. Uh, there's something called the Book Depository, which can, can be ordered without shipping charges, I understand. Uh, and a bookstore will order it for you because they always get their books from warehouses. It's easy for them to... To do it. And if people want to follow you or you're on social media? www.gregorywallance.com. That's my website. I have Sarah's letters on the website, photographs. I have a great actress who happens to be my daughter. <laughs> okay. Uh, doing readings from Sarah's letters. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, you'll also see an interview that my, my daughter did with me and some other uh, materials. So you'll, you'll get a lot of information from that website. Awesome. So we'll post links Thank to you. that. And before we go, we collaborate with the Jewish Journal and it's a great uh, news source for Jewish news uh, in Los Angeles. So check them out at jewishjournal.com and we accept donations, guys. So if you want to help us out, we do it on our free time. Um, please uh, refer uh, to 2ngb.com slash donate and Today, Eitan wasn't with me. He's abroad. But it was great to be here with you, Gregory, and your oh, lovely wife. Likewise, Nayor. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, just good luck. You know, I, I, we're waiting for the next book. Oh, well, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye.